Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Brian Buma will join us to discuss the Atlas of a Changing Climate. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, the climate is changing. Our ability, though, to visualize these changes and joining us today to discuss is Dr. Brian Buma. Dr. Buma is Assistant Professor of Integrative Biology at the University of Colorado, Denver. Work focuses on disturbances like fire, wind, landslides, and a subsequent change in species composition and ecosystem functioning. Author of numerous scientific and popular works on the subject, he has penned the new book, The Atlas of a Changing Climate, our evolving planet visualized with more than 100 maps, charts, and infographics. And Dr. Buma, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Yeah, thank you so much for the invite. Well, this is certainly a great book you've put together here, The Atlas of a Changing Climate, in which you depict what's going on with our world. I'm curious why you decided to put the book together. Yeah, the book really is my attempt to share beautiful science and beautiful imagery to everybody to get it out of the the realm of scientific literature and into the realm of accessible stories and accessible imagery that depicts the world and the environmental systems of the world at the scale at which they need to be depicted, you know, tells the story of the world at the scale of the world. So it's a book full of anecdotes and stories from around the world, but then imagery, it's over half images, that really show how these processes work, you know, where atmospheric rivers come from, the scale of hurricanes in the northern hemisphere and southern hemisphere, things like that, things where you can really see like, oh, we're not just talking about the weather in Florida or the weather in Chicago, we're talking about the weather in Chicago as it relates to the whole world. You know, as it relates to North America, and it goes a long ways towards making climate change more realistic because we're small critters. We can only see three miles in any direction on flat ground. Like our world is fairly small and climate is really big. And so we need this sort of imagery and we need these sorts of explanations to tie our lived experience to this planet we live on. The images really are captivating and breathtaking and help you appreciate the scale of changes that are going on. How did you go about the process of putting the images together, selecting these images? How, what was the idea behind the thought process there? Well, the thought process really, you know, the genesis of the idea really came from the infamous time in 2015 when Senator Anhop brought a snowball onto, <laughs> onto the floor of the Senate and said, it's cold in D.C., therefore global warming isn't a concern. And I, I wanted to know why that resonated with people. And it, it really seems to be because we can, as scientists, we can talk about climate change all the time. You know, we're trained to think big scale, global systems. But that, you know, that takes a lot of, it takes a lot of training. And it's, it's not fair to ask other people to make that mental leap without a lot of training. So I wanted to think of some way that we can connect these stories of climate change to the broader world. So the process of picking images was, taking these stories and these basic explanations of of how you know how we see the world working and then finding an image to to reflect that so 
part of it is historical. There's a lot of historical imagery in here. There's maps that demonstrate our evolving view of how the world looks, you know, how hard it was to predict hurricanes or even understand what a hurricane was, you know, only 100 years ago. And then later, it's a lot of stuff was pulled from National Geographic. They have a lot of imagery in here because they do such a stellar job at showing, uh, mapping the world, you know, and mapping these processes. So it was very much a let's pick the story that is going to illustrate this part of the natural world and then let's go find an image that reflects it. And it's unbelievable how much beautiful imagery is out there. I mean, it's it's just, it was a delight to search through the Library of Congress for old images, search through NASA, Luke with NASA, Luke with Nat Geo for modern images. I mean, it's just, it's unreal what data illustrators and cartographers are doing today. And it's just a joy to see it on paper. Did you have a favorite among all the things that you dug up? I do. Um, it's hard to pick a favorite, but one of my favorites is, it's actually two images. It's an image of the Sauk River in Washington, which is pretty close to my hometown. First, you see an image of from Landsat, from satellite. And so you see this Northwest River, there's some farms, uh, you know, there's a road, there's a little bit of a, of a braided river floodplain, uh, there's some logging. And this is a section which talks about rivers and how they move, you know, across the floodplain and they evolve through time. And so on one page, you have this beautiful sort of landscape uh, taken from space. It's just the type of thing you'd see on Google Earth. You know, anybody could see on Google Earth. And the next page is the exact same extent. So the exact same area, corner to corner, except with LIDAR, which is this technology that shoots later lasers from airplanes and can very accurately vegetation and just see what the ground actually looks like. And all of a sudden, the river just pops out. Like, instead of seeing a mix of trees and roads, you see how big that river really is. It's actually much bigger than you see from Landsat. Its floodplain actually spans, you know, half the page. Uh, and you can see old river channels. You can see the current river channel. You can see flood, where floods broke out in the past. It's just a beautiful, beautiful illustration of uh, a dynamic natural system, but also just the power of our technology to really help us understand how this natural system works and the scale on which it works. When one goes through the book, you certainly get the sense or the impression of, of all the changes that are occurring and, and just the scale of everything. In putting the book together, was your impression of these changes changed? Were you surprised by anything as, as you were putting together? You know, you're always astounded at when, when writing about these sorts of things and thinking about these sorts of things. You're always astounded at how hard it is to isolate stuff. There's that quote by Mira, you know, you pull on a pulling a thread, uh, everything is connected. It's hard just to divide this stuff into chapters. Like it's, you start talking about the atmosphere, and then all of a sudden you want to talk about floods and what that does to the soil or what that does to farms. You talk about cities, and it's how do you talk about cities without talking about the landscape in which you've embedded. So the challenge here, and just the delight in a way, because it, it, again, it is just beautiful science and, and, and fun story, was talking about a system specifically while also reflecting that it's embedded in this larger world because every time you want to take a big the big picture view all of a sudden you're like oh but there's this 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 and this and it, it makes for it makes for wonderful stories just absolutely wonderful stories and if anything just emphasizes how connected we are to everybody else and everything else regardless of where you are on, on the planet so what is your impression of where we're at where are we going and where, where do you think what are the possibilities for future of our planet yeah, 
it's always sobering. You know, the book is not meant to be doom and gloom, and it's not really that way at all. It's more um, just talking about these, trying to explain them in a way that anybody can read. Like, all right, and uh, that's how that works. And then they can draw their own conclusions uh, and sort of think about how this book would make some expectations, which then they can go compare against the literature. And there's a bunch of literature cited in the end. But yeah, to your point about where we're going, everything in this book and everything in climate science just emphasizes that there's no such thing as far away. You know, everything's connected. Everything uh, is affected by the littlest thing. We and, you know, as COP26, it's been quite a bit of the news. The projected changes that we're already locked into, such as uh, up to a meter of sea level rise, for example, that's, you know, already going to happen. Substantial warming is already going to happen. Acidification will continue. Ocean acidification will continue with the concurrent upsets to ecosystems and food webs. Yeah, we're locked into quite a bit, and it's it's discouraging. But what's going on now is encouraging. I don't think anyone could be in this field for very long if they weren't at least a little bit of a climate of a closet optimist. <laughs> you know, we're COP20 is focused on capping limits of warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, and that's a lot of warming. But it's it's a fraction of a degree, half a degree less than the, the goals of Paris, for example. We're still going to see widespread changes as a result. You know, um, bigger fire years, billions of dollars spent on you know, wildfire suppression, for example. But the, le- the more we can limit it, the better. And the one thing that's been encouraging about the COP26 summits is not just that there's a bunch of uh, countries represented that are pledging various things. You know, I think we're probably all a little bit cynical about that. That's still hopeful, right? There's still hope that something will emerge from that. But also the demonstrations by the youth that are going on at this point in time. I mean, there's at the summit. We have a lot of slow-moving bureaucracies going on, but there's a lot of young folks that are highly mobilized. And so I have I have more hope for the future. And so as the future generation, so as they become uh, start to assume positions of power, I do hope that we can turn things around. I mean, it's too the ship has sailed as far as stopping this sort of thing, but. The ship has not sailed in terms of slowing or adapting. I think at this point, there's no folks that are that are coming online and, and starting to get engaged now. They don't have a, a pre-climate change baseline. Not not that climate change well, hasn't been occurring for all of our lifetimes, regardless of how old you are, but they've been aware of it, you know, since the since the since they were born. You know, I mean, uh, global surface temperature was a little over a degree higher. In the last 10 years than it was 100 years ago. Um, over land, a degree and a half Celsius. So they're aware of that, right? Like they know this is going up. They know precipitation is going up. And so the reality of climate change is baked into their bones a bit more uh, than I think a lot of folks. And so I think there is reason for hope. Give an overview of the book. You do break it down into a, into a number of broad categories atmosphere, water, land cities and the life. I mean, all these different features, all these different aspects that you cover in the book, do you find one as being more effective than the others or as one bearing more of the brunt of things than others? Yeah, the one that always impresses me in terms of the magnitude of change uh, is the ocean. The earth is 71% water and it's such a good buffer for climate change and specifically the climate change we're doing is the carbon dioxide going to the atmosphere. It's a slow moving thing. And so when you start to actually look into what climate change has done to the ocean, it's incredible in terms of the magnitude because it seems so constant. You know, that I, I grew up on the ocean uh, up until I moved to Colorado. I'd always lived fairly close within a couple of miles of the water. And it's just this thing that's kind of always there. And, and, and yet when you actually do the math, it, it's 
stunning how much we're doing to it. So the, the ocean is warming currently at a rate equivalent to three to five atomic bombs per second. Like, that's how much energy we're putting into it. Like, per second, you know, we've been talking for 10 minutes, like 600-some seconds. But that's an awful lot of energy going into the going into the ocean. It's a very slow-moving thing, but something which is um, hard to stop once it gets going. And, and so I think this is probably our biggest challenge, really, is we're committed to a lot of change because we got this monstrosity of a thing, this ocean warming, and now it's going to take a while to slow down and, and, and turn that ship around, so to speak. <laughs> what is your sense of the appreciation around the globe of these um, changes? You know, like I said, I think it's better with the younger generation, the older generation. I think the sense of connection to climate change really comes down to whether folks can afford to pay attention to it or not. You know, it, it's I'm very sensitive to the to the um, challenge of asking folks who are just working you know, paycheck to paycheck to suddenly start caring about global climate change. Like that's not the perspective they necessarily have time to take, and it's a scale at which they're not trained to think and. So I I hope that by thinking about stuff at the at the at the, the broader scale and, and using these sorts of imagery the imagery can sort of communicate that to those groups because I I'm afraid that a lot of this stuff is happening in the background because the time scales involved and spatial scales involved they're so divorced from our daily experience so again I yeah I think the the biggest challenge in communicating climate change science is getting past that misconception of uh, scale, you know, getting past the, yeah, well, it was, you know, temperature today varied by 20 degrees. You know, why am I concerned about half a degree? <laughs> I mean, I get that. And, and so that's, this is my attempt to address that uh, gap. And really a great book, and it does a great deal towards addressing that gap. Maybe to close then, uh, people picking up the book, people looking at it, what would you like their take-home message to be? And any last words regarding your book, The Atlas of the Changing Climate? Sure. I, I hope the take-home message here is just how beautiful the the world is when you look at it at a big scale you know one of the one another sort of motivation for this is something as simple as the famous blue marble picture the picture that was taken uh, uh, by some of the first astronauts uh, one of the first pic- or the first picture of the globe from space the world really is a pretty place <laughs> and the earth systems really are just pretty beautiful things you know just just how how the atmosphere circles the globe and and how the westerlies work, and how ocean circulation works, and all that stuff's in here, and at a nice storytelling level, where I hope folks who pick up the book can just enjoy it for what it is, you know, not feeling necessarily guilty about climate change or things like that, just just seeing like, wow, this is really a wonderful, wonderful place to be, and this is why it's changing the way it is, and this is what we can do about it, you know, I, I hope it sits on coffee tables, and I hope it is a book that folks can just pick up and enjoy for the imagery or they can pick up and enjoy for the text or both and dip in and dip out and enjoy themselves every time. We were just talking with Dr. Brian Buma, his new book, The Atlas of a Changing Climate, Our Evolving Planet Visualized with More Than 100 Maps, Charts, and Infographics. Dr. Buma, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Yeah, thanks so much. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.